We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. What the German Panzer Divisions did in May 1940 was not in their training and operational manuals. What they did had never been practiced. It was all made up as they went, improvised. Karl Heinz Freiser, in his book Blitzkrieg Legend, says, As earlier emphasized, the operations plan of the Army High Command was only a half-hearted and inconsistent implementation of Munchstein's bold sickle-cut idea. The decisive breach point was at Sedan. Menstein and Guderian had assumed that after crossing the Meuse River, the Panzer formations would immediately have push to the Channel Coast, disregarding their exposed flanks, or otherwise lose the race against the Allies. All of the higher-ranking generals from the Army High Command, and all the way down to the Army Group A and von Kleist, had discarded precisely this requirement as being too risky. So now the Panzers were across the Meuse. What next? The operations plan drafted by Halter who later would claim to be the father of the spectacular success of the sickle-cut idea, would have had the panzers wait on the opposite bank of the Meuse until enough infantry divisions had come up to secure the bridgehead. By letter dated 12 March 1940, from Fritz Halder, Chief of Staff of the German High Command, to General George von Sondenstern, orthodox chief of staff of Army Group A that he had replaced Manstein with, Halder gave him this instruction. An immediate operational level effect driving from the Panzer units that are first across the Merce River is not expected. Only after infantry formations with adequate strength have taken up the required movement space west of the Meuse and have a firm grip on it. Can one consider combining the still usable Panzer units with an operational objective? Hitler, the man who also later wanted to take all of the credit for the brilliant Blitzkrieg campaign, was no more enthusiastic than Halder to do anything that was out of the ordinary as understood from the Great War. Hitler was afraid of the threat from the exposed flanks if the Panzers charged forward without delay to the Channel, as Manstein had wanted. Hitler put his own personal reservation on any further measures after forcing the Meuse River crossing. Hitler was going to be nervous and creating obstacles to the swiftest possible implementation of this campaign, thankfully losing his one and only chance to actually win World War II. Both Halder and Hitler had in mind a World War I speed battle, just with more modern tanks 
so much for their claims to have come up with the idea of the Blitzkrieg that eventuated in France in 1940. On 13th May, there was only one bridge available to the Germans to cross the Meuse, the 1st Panzer Divisions. It was a pontoon bridge built at Gaulier. It had been completed with the very last metre of available pontoon equipment. Across that bridge went the 1st Panzer Division. Then Guderian fed across it the Panzer Brigade of the 2nd Panzer Division. On 14th May, almost 600 Panzers had been funnelled over this single bridge into the German bridgehead on the other side of the Meuse. The story of the anti-aircraft defences assembled to protect that bridge, which even a single hit would have taken out of action since there were no more pontoons available to repair it, and the efforts of the British and air forces to destroy it unsuccessfully, and at enormous cost to them, isn't the focus of this program. Maybe another time. What the crossing of the Meuse River at this point on 13 May meant wasn't fully appreciated at French headquarters at this time. The only information the French commanders had on the crossing of the Meuse was what the French headquarters in Vincennes received on 13 May. It was a message that came in at 21.25 from General Georges, the commander-in-chief of the North East Front. In his message he said that there had been un pépin assez sérieux a rather serious pinprick at Sedan. British historian Alastair Horn commented that was the understatement of the century. At noon on 14 May, the French commander Gamelin still referred to the breakthrough at Sedan as merely a local interlude. He didn't grasp the full measure of the disaster until 15 May. I again stress that what was about to happen on 14th May with Guderian's command came as a great surprise, not only to the French and the British, but also to the German High Command and to the Groster Feldherr aller Zeiten, the greatest military genius of all time, the Führer Adolf Hitler. Guderian was in favour of the Ununterbrockenen Angriffs, uninterrupted attack. Guderian didn't want to wait for the infantry to come up and secure the bridgehead. He wanted to launch his punces as soon as possible to put into effect the plan that Manstein had revealed to him back in Koblenz in October 1939. The delay would have given the French more than enough time to build up a new line of resistance that would have entirely frustrated Manstein's brilliant plan. Against charging ahead was the fact that there was only the one pontoon bridge over the Meuse, and it was impossible to repair if the Allied air forces managed to breach it. But this was meant to be a lightning campaign, and on the 14th May, things began to develop favourably for Guderian to do what he wanted to do. At 12.30 that day, Guderian received the message that a unit of the 1st Panzer Division had seized the bridge at Malmy, one kilometre to the west of Chemery. The bridge was undamaged, and the 1st Panzer Division was in the process of pushing across it and advancing further west. The little bridge over the Ardennes Canal at Malmy now became the pivotal point of the Sickle Cut movement. 
Guderian hurried to the command post of the 1st Panzer Division in Chemery. Other important developments, crossings made by capturing bridges over the Meuse River, began happening one after the other. At around 7.30 on 14 May, the advanced detachment of the 1st Panzer Division's 1st Rifle Regiment took the bridge across the Ardennes Canal at Omicourt, located further to the north of Malmy. Then the 2nd Panzer Division's infantry seized the bridge at Arnon at around 1200. Soon after, another important bridge across the Ardennes Canal was seized at pont a -Barre, near the place where the canal flows into the Meuse River. Starting from 1430, the first panzers crossed that bridge. Guderian now had the following options. One, observe the usual tactical necessity of securing the, as yet, unstable bridgehead against the anticipated French counterattack from the south, or two, exploit the enemy's confusion and fully implement Manstein's operational idea, unadulterated, of the sickle cut, and immediately push west to the English Channel with the main body of the Panzer units. He couldn't do both, and for that latter option of launching the charge to the Channel, he had no orders. So, what to do? As Guderian struggled with his two options, Walter Wenck, the Chief of Operations of the 1st Panzer Division, reminded Guderian of his favourite saying, Klotzen nicht kleckern. Hit with the fist, don't feel with the fingers. In his memoirs after the war, Guderian wrote, That really answered my question. At 1400, on 14th May, Guderian ordered all units of the 1st and 2nd Panzer Divisions to wheel westward from the move and to attack toward Rethel, 40 kilometres away as the crow flies. On the 14th and 15th of May, the security of the bridgehead, critical to the movement of the following German forces crossing the Meuse, was entrusted to the 10th Panzer Division and the Infantry Regiment Gross Deutschland. The pivotal point for what was about to happen occurred at 1400 on 14 May at Chemery, when Guderian, without any authorization whatsoever, ordered his panzers to charge westward to the channel. In giving that order, he violated the clear orders given to him by his military superiors. He also violated Hitler's instructions. He went against all of the rules of the art of war. This was to be the first time that Guderian would ignore his orders and do exactly what he wanted. It wouldn't be the last. His decision began the avalanche. He swept along with him in his wake the other panzer divisions. Together they formed an operational wedge, like the kind that Alexander the Great had used with his companion cavalry to win his incredible victory at Gorgamela. The plan, conceived by Manstein and refined in his discussions with Guderian, was then implemented, with the panzers streaking for the Channel Coast. They had no flank or rear protection from the infantry divisions. The thrust took the shape of a narrow sickle, the description that Winston Churchill later coined for it. 
it was highly significant that Guderian's initiative had wrested the controls from the hands of the General Officer Corps on the operational echelon. The operation increasingly took on a dynamic of its own and developed the way Manstein had clearly seen it in his mind. In the end, the Panzer divisions simply took off and ran away from their following infantry armies, so that the umbilical cord to the infantry marching behind in the clouds of dust left by the Panzers was ripped off. This was how the first independent operational employment of the Panzer forces happened, that would be copied throughout World War II in Europe and North Africa by all countries. And then after the war again in some of the largest formal battles after World War II, such as the wars that the Israelis fought and the Americans and their allies waged against Saddam Hussein, all with the children of this first blitzkrieg. Today, military historians agree that France's defeat was sealed after the breakthrough at Sedan. It was quickly obvious that on 14 May, the Allied troops had been outmaneuvered because of their deployment deep into Belgium and Holland, which had cost them the campaign. French historian Pierre Le Goyer, in his book Le Mystère Gamelin, The Mystery of Gamelin, wrote, In the 1939-1940 campaign, 14 May was the real turning point. It was indeed on that day that the Battle of France was decided. French Prime Minister Reynaud seemed to have instantly recognised what had happened. On 15 May, he sent Winston Churchill the following telegram. We lost the battle last night. The route to Paris is open. The German attack, especially the breakout of the Panzers from the bridgehead, was so fast that there were hardly any major combat actions. Many French soldiers were in such severe shock as a result of the flood of events that they either fled in panic or allowed themselves to be taken prisoners, almost without resistance. That also explains the astonishingly low casualty rate in this battle. The assault team of two assault engineer platoons of the 3rd Company, 43rd Assault Engineer Battalion, under Oberleutmann Gunther Kortals, achieved the most important individual success. At the Bellevue intersection, this team created the basis for the breakthroughs of the 1st and 2nd Panzer Divisions. Kortals was in complete astonishment over what he had achieved. In his after-action report, he recorded that he had taken 11 concrete bunkers and mopped up numerous field works during his assault team's mission without a single dead or wounded. The French appeared to be paralysed. British Major Philip Gribble, a liaison officer to the French Army, wrote in his diary about the breakthrough at Sedan. Recently I walked through the fortifications along this front and estimated that well-organised and resolute resistance would cost the Germans half a million casualties if they actually managed to achieve their breakthrough. But what happened? The Germans marched through eight-kilometre-deep fortifications with a loss of perhaps 500 men. During the Sedan breakthrough battle on 13 and 14 May, Panzer Corps Guderian suffered about 120 dead and 400 wounded. 
This low casualty rate is bound to cause astonishment when compared to the casualty figures of the big breakthrough battles of World War I, and they all failed. In May 1940, the Germans at Sedan, within five days after the start of the campaign, achieved what they had attempted to achieve in vain for four years during World War I, the decisive operational level breakthrough. Oberst A.G. Kurt Zeitzler, who was, as Guderian said, no panzer expert, addressed the logistic needs of Guderian's planned lightning-fast sickle-cut operation, and he came up with the perfect solution. The logistic after-action report of Panzer Group Kleist contains the following passage. Between 10 May and the capture of Calais, there was not a single supply crisis that could not be resolved with the resources of the group von Kleist without in any way interfering with command functions. How was this achieved? Three truck transport battalions were added to Panzer Group Kleist. They had a capacity of 4,800 tonnes. All 41,140 vehicles of Panzer Group Kleist were loaded to the limit of their cargo capacity with ammunition, rations, and above all, most importantly, fuel. Tank depots were spaced along the planned march movement routes of Panzer Group Kleist from the assembly areas all the way to the Belgian border. Abundantly stocked supply depots were set up near the border so that the Panzer units could draw on them during the operation's first phase. The required ration, fuel and ammunition convoys were ready for the advance supply base, planned in Luxembourg before the start of the offensive. Ammunition needs were more easily addressed for this new kind of warfare than had been the case in World War I, which had needed prodigious quantities. The movement factor, and not the firepower factor, was what mattered in this revolutionary new kind of warfare. The actual ammunition consumption during the campaign fell far short of what had been calculated as necessary because of the very fact that movement was what mattered. The only shortage of ammunition occurred during the bitter fighting for Ston, south of Sedan, where the 10th Panzer Division and the Infanterie Regiment Großdeutschland, Infantry Regiment Großdeutschland, had to beat off what probably was the most dangerous French counterattack. The shortage that happened there was of anti-tank ammunition. Junker 52 transport aircraft dropped ammunition containers by parachute to resupply their hard-pressed comrades. Fuel was, of course, in many ways the most important requirement for Panzer Group Kleist to be able to execute the deep penetration of the sickle cut from the Ardennes to the English Channel. The swift Panzer penetrations were only possible because the fuel supply arrangements that Zeitzler put into place were inspired. Nothing like it had ever been done before. Another first for this campaign, to which I have to say that the novel was the norm, and it worked smoothly. Retired officer Graf von Kielmansig was the supply officer in charge of logistics for the 1st Panzer Division during the campaign. After the war, he described the fuel supply movements during the advance to the Meuse River 
as one of the toughest tasks that he had had to accomplish during the war. The main problem was a conflict between tactical and logistical requirements. Zeitzler demanded that when all vehicles crossed the Belgian border, they had to be fully loaded with fuel. But at the same time, Major IG Volta Venk, the operations officer of the 1st Panzer Division, demanded that this had to be done in such a way that the refuelling would not slow the march movement schedule. There was to be no stopping. Resupply had to take place on the move. Kielmansig overcame that problem by using an improvised system of petrol can delivery to resolve that conflict. Using the marvellous and now worldwide standard fuel containers, the jerry can. The quantities of fuel needed for all the marching columns were calculated precisely and were then stockpiled in jerry cans at the planned tactical rest halts along the 100 kilometre march to reach the border. Once the border had been crossed, the numerous transport trucks accompanying Panzer Group Kleist carrying jerry cans were inserted into the spearhead of the march columns. At suitable points, jerry cans were handed to the crews, standing on the decks of their tanks as the supply vehicles drove past slowly. When the Panzers and other vehicles next stopped, the crews could refuel their vehicles and then empty jerry cans were discarded at designated points along the road. From there they were picked up and refilled for the next fuel dump. At times, during the rapid advance from the Meuse River to the Channel Coast, it did become necessary to airlift fuel forward. The biggest airlift was to the Belval airfield near Charleville, after the widening of the bridgeheads beyond the Meuse. On just one day, 400 tonnes of fuel were air-delivered there. Eat your heart out, Stalingrad. Repair of broken-down vehicles was the only serious problem connected with logistics. The 41,140 vehicles of Panzer Group Kleist had to cover a distance of at least 600 kilometres all the way to the Channel Coast. The actual mileage clocked was much higher because the Panzers were constantly being shifted back and forth. Some Panzer formations had up to 50% of their vehicles break down. What was to be constantly one of the strong suits of the Germans during World War II, the astonishingly short time the vehicles spent undergoing repairs, offset the astonishingly large number of temporarily broken down vehicles. The quick recovery of strength depleted by breakdowns was a feature of the German army wherever it was. Again, the Luftwaffe helped flying important spare parts in. This rapid repair of vehicles meant that just a few days after the fall of Dunkirk, the army was again able to start off on the second major operation of the campaign in the West, Case Red, with combat-ready formations. That there were no serious logistical problems was due in no small part to the astonishingly short duration of the campaign. Suddenly, it was over and the troops were facing a gigantic mountain of unused supply goods. During the 1941 campaign in the East, the situation was the exact reverse. So now let's get on board one of the tanks of Panzergruppe Kleist as they execute Guderian's unauthorised advance, although they didn't know it 
they had to take Dunkirk by 24 May. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>